Father, we praise you for Jesus, that the Son of Heaven has come to earth. Lord, I praise you for the work that Christ has done. Lord, in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection, the Son of God made a way for us to become sons and daughters of God as we trust in him. So we praise you for Jesus today. And Lord, we thank you that not only has Christ come, Father, we thank you that Jesus is coming again. When we look out in this world and it's darkness and decay, and our hearts cry out, even so come, Lord Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for the hope of Christ's appearing soon to come. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be filled with the provision that Christ has given us in the meantime between his first and second coming, the provision of the Holy Spirit. So Father, we pray that you would pour out the Holy Spirit on us. Pour out the Holy Spirit on us, Father. Pour out the Holy Spirit on us. May your Spirit be our teacher today. May the work of your Spirit in our hearts open blind eyes. Give hearing to our ears and I pray make us vessels that are receptive to the work of Christ in us. And Lord, we know that we're not the only church in this community gathered in the name of Christ. And we thank you for the other churches, Lord. We pray that you pour out your spirit on them. That there would be a great awakening in our day, Father, beginning in this community. A revival, Father, that many of us have prayed for our entire Christian lives. Lord, may it be today. Father, we pray for Pastor Sandy Robertson of New Covenant Fellowship in Titusville. Thank you for his ministry of prayer and how he's coordinated pastors, not only in this area, but throughout the country to be united together in prayer. And I pray this morning for him, that you would encourage him by the work of your spirit in his life, by the grace of Jesus in him. And so, Father, be with us, be among your people in this community today. Be glorified in what you do and make us receptive to all that you say. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to uh, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. My favorite teacher in high school was uh, my math teacher. Her name was Mrs. Masters. She was a great teacher. And I wasn't great at math, so she had her work cut out for her. But every year that I had Mrs. Masters, she really went over the top to do her very best to help me earn an A in those math classes. And that includes trigonometry my senior year of high school. So she made a way for me to work hard and get that A, and I had to earn it. I had to do the work. And some of that even included the fact that I actually had to do a little extra work after I graduated so that I could earn the A that she was committed to give me. And so a week or so after graduation, I dropped off some papers so that she could finalize my grade and make me get that A. And I'll never forget dropping off that homework to her, a little past due since I'd already graduated high school. And she'd given me so much grace, I I just thanked her for it. We talked for a few minutes and I said how grateful I was to have her as my teacher. And uh, she said that even with all my shenanigans, she'd actually enjoyed having me in class, which I was grateful to hear. And we kind of went our separate ways in just a moment. I turned to walk out the room, but Mrs. Master stopped me. She had one more thing that she wanted to say. And I don't remember the exact words that she told me in that moment, but she said something like this, Titus, there's something I need to tell you. 
that you might not want to hear, but I feel like I have to say it. You can't straddle the fence with God. And it seems like you're trying to straddle the fence with God. I've known you for a long time, and it looks like you think you can have one foot in this world and one foot with God and be okay. And I just have to tell you before you go, and you're not in my classes anymore, you need to know it doesn't work like that with God, Titus. You have to choose I hope you know I care about you. I love you. I believe you'll be successful. But I have to tell you this. I'm afraid you're going to throw your life away straddling the fence with God. Well, needless to say, it wasn't a lot of fun to hear someone I respected say that they were worried I was going to waste my life. It's hard to hear. Matter of fact, it felt offensive and judgmental. And even though I knew she loved me and I knew she was saying that because she cared about me and I even told her how thankful I was she was willing to say the hard things about me, I still internally felt like she was way off base. I walked out of school that day and I decided I would pretty much be able to disregard most of what Mrs. Masters had to say. But I'll tell you this, over the next six months or so, God began to make something abundantly clear to an arrogant freshman in college. And here's what he made clear. Mrs. Masters was right. Like everything she said about God, about me, about my life. God used that conversation with Mrs. Masters to change the trajectory of my eternity, and I will forever be grateful for a high school math teacher who was willing to give me a message that wasn't easy to hear and wasn't easy for her to say. I will forever be grateful for Jesus working in my heart so that I would believe the truth of a message that was hard to hear. You need to know this, friends. Here's why I tell that story. Some of the most important messages are the hardest ones to hear. And our text this morning is one of those kinds of messages. The message of Jesus in this text is sober and it is serious and it's not easy to hear. As a matter of fact, most of our world would take the words of Jesus the way that I in some way took the message from Mrs. Masters, offensive and judgmental and maybe a little over the top and quite off base. But one of the most important messages for us to hear is the hardest one to hear, even from the words of Jesus himself. And so let's pick up where we left off in our study of the Gospel of Mark by seeing a message that for many of us may be hard to hear and our world might feel as hard to believe. Verse 42 of Mark chapter 9. The word of God says this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable Fire, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell 
where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of our Lord for us today. And may God add his blessing to the teaching and hearing of the word of God. And I think you could see why I would say this message is hard to hear, right? Four times in this text, Jesus talks directly and seriously about sin. Three times he talks directly and seriously about hell. He suggests that people should cut off a hand or a foot. He says there is a fate worse than being cast into the bottom of the sea. And he ends with a cryptic series of statements about salt. This is a hard passage, guys. It's hard to hear. It's hard to teach. It's hard to understand. But there are some things in this passage that are absolutely clear from the words of Christ. And here's how I want us to approach this difficult text. I want us to focus on those very clear truths in this text and let them guide our study of what Jesus has to say and even form our big idea. So here's our big idea formed from the clear truth of this text. The big idea for this morning is this. Hell is real. Sin is serious. And Jesus is our only hope. Hell is real. Sin is serious, and Jesus is our only hope. Now let's study this passage by looking through the lens of that big idea, starting with the first phrase, hell is real. This passage is filled with references and warnings about hell. As a matter of fact, that very first uh, salvo of Jesus is really an implicit warning against hell. Look at verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Notice this phrase, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Okay, so here's something you might want to know. First century Jews were commonly fishing out on a lake when Jesus has this to say. But at this time, they did not cross the sea. They were not a seafaring people. As a matter of fact, for Jews, the sea represented a place of great fear and chaos for them. So none of the the, the people who would have originally heard Jesus's warning would have ever wanted to be cast into the sea no matter what. Even if they were able to swim or to, to try and save themselves, they wouldn't want to be cast into the sea. But Jesus adds to their displeasure by saying that before they were cast into the sea, a great millstone would be hung around their neck. This is a kind of millstone that was that was so large it had to have a donkey or a mule pushing against it in order to make it move so it could grind the grain. And so it's a massive stone that Jesus is referring to. And so the picture is that someone would, would be cast into the sea with a massive stone hung around their neck. The, the, the visual is pretty clear. They would immediately sink to the bottom, never to be seen or heard from again. And for Jews and anyone else really, but for these Jews... That would have been their worst nightmare scenario. That the place that they feared and dreaded, a place of chaos and darkness, would be a place they would be cast to and sink to the bottom, never to be seen or heard from again. So what does that have to do with hell? Well, the connection is that Jesus says it would be better for that to happen. In other words, he's saying there's something worse than their worst nightmare of being thrown into the depths of the sea. What is worse than that? He says hell 
Three times in this text, verse 43, 45, 47, Jesus then shows us what would be worse. It's hell itself. In the original language of the New Testament, the word for hell that Jesus uses in this passage is the word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was a valley that was just south of the city of Jerusalem. It had a lot of history among the Jews during the time of the wicked kings in the Old Testament. A group of Jews, almost entirely the nation, rebelled against God and began to worship other gods. And so they started to sacrifice to false gods. And the place that they sacrificed to false gods was there in that valley south of Jerusalem. The Valley of Gehenna. It was a place where they not only sacrificed, but they sacrificed humans. As a matter of fact, two wicked kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, even sacrificed their small children in that valley there. It was an awful place, a place of rot and decay, a place that represented all of the debased, gross sinfulness of the people of that area. And when the good king, Josiah, came to the throne, he brought a bunch of reforms into the nation where the Jews were living. And what he did is he turned their hearts again to God, but they had to do something with this valley that now is filled with corpses and rotting flesh and all kinds of debased reminders of their sin. And he turned it into the garbage dump, in a sense. He he turned it into a a landfill, and they, they would throw their garbage, their refuse in that place, and they set it on fire. And because that was where they would put all of their garbage and unwanted items, they were constantly feeding the fires of Gehenna with fuel so that the fire burned all the time. So it's rotting, it's gross, it's trash. There are worms eating all of the grossness of that place. And then it's burning with fire. And that's why verse 48 uses a quote from Isaiah 66, 24, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a perfect description of Gehenna. Perpetually crawling with worms and unquenchable fire. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's intentionally associating hell with the most awful place these people would have known. He wants them to have a visual from this world that closely parallels what hell is actually like. A place of unquenchable fire. And look what he says in verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Here's what Jesus is saying. There are only two options. Either you will enter into the eternal kingdom of God or you will be thrown forever into hell itself. As a matter of fact, even though Jesus is the one in the New Testament who talks far more about hell than anyone else, the Gospels aren't the only place we see that kind of description about hell. Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, there's a description of what will happen to those who reject Jesus. And in the coming days when the beast rises up against the people of God, there will be those who join with the enemy of God and turn their back on Christ, reject Christ. They'll take a mark, the mark of the beast. We don't have time to talk about all of that, but here's a description of what occurs to those who reject Jesus. Verse 10 of Revelation 14. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. Jesus says this is the eternal destiny for those who reject Jesus and die in their sin. They are tormented, he says, forever. And then he adds, ever. Emphasizing the eternal nature of the torment of hell. Romans 3.23 says that the wage or the payment of sin is death. And that's not just physical death on this earth. It's a reference to the eternal death that occurs in the fires of hell. Church, I cannot imagine this. As I have studied for this morning, I have trembled over and over again. Trying to think and then simultaneously trying not to think about the reality of what the Bible is teaching here. That everyone who would reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and die in their sin would be destined to spend eternity in hell. I cannot imagine And though in my heart, I have to tell you, there is a thing in me that wishes it would be another way. And God forbid that we would call ourselves orthodox and talk about hell and believe in its reality in a way that would make us cavalier. And to say that people will be cast into hell and to be flippant about it. God forbid that would be in our hearts. The reality is this, just because we have chosen not to talk about hell doesn't mean that it no longer exists Hell is real. Jesus says it's real. Jesus says it is the eternal destination for everyone who dies in their sin apart from Christ. May the Holy Spirit in his way make it real to our hearts. What Jesus is saying, there is a place called hell that is the place Of eternal torment for those who die apart from Christ. It is the just result of sin. And that brings us to the second clear point because hell is real, sin is serious. If Romans 3 is right, and it is that the payment or wage of sin is hell, then sin is deadly serious. And that is a point that Jesus is making in this text. And he's making this point by using shocking images. Look at verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Can you not see clearly what Jesus is saying? He is calling us all people everywhere, including you and me, to get serious in dealing with our sin. 
It has eternal consequences. And you need to know, I believe that Jesus means exactly what he's saying here. That if your hand or foot is the cause of your sin, then cut it off rather than continue in sin. Value God's kingdom more than you value the dearest things that you have like a hand or a foot or an eye. Be so serious about dealing with the cause of your sin that you don't play games with sin. You don't subscribe to the world's way of doing things. You don't get cute with sin because the fires of hell burn hot with the wrath of God. Why? Because God takes sin that seriously. Jesus says, do not take your sin lightly. God doesn't take your sin lightly. And that is absolutely true. But listen, church, don't forget. Jesus told us something earlier that we cannot forget today. He told us the cause of our sin. That's why he said, if your foot or hand or eye is the cause. He's actually told us the cause, and it isn't our hands or our feet or our eyes. What is the root cause of sin? Go back to Mark chapter 7, just a couple pages earlier, and listen to the words of Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 20 and 23, Jesus says this. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceitful, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, evil things, come where? From within. And they defile a person. What does Jesus say is the cause of our sin? Our hearts. Guys, that's why true followers of Jesus who really take his word with earnestness don't lop off their hands and feet. It's because they know because of what Jesus says. That's not the real cause of our sin. It's something within us, not outside us, that causes us to sin. Listen, here's the reality for us as people. The reason we sin is because we want to sin. We desire to sin. It's in our hearts. It's who we are. We are sin because we are sinners. It's who we are. Listen to me. You may not know this. I got a couple of crazy dogs. And my dogs are dogs. They bark. They roll around in my yard. They scratch their chins with the back feet because they can They are dogs. And you can bark all you want. And you can roll around in your yard all you want. And you can scratch your feet, your chin with your feet if you're flexible enough. But that does not make you a dog, does it? It makes you weird. (laughs) All right? And you need to know that if you're doing it. Cut it out. Our behavior doesn't determine our identity. Our identity determines our behavior. And we don't need new hands or feet. We don't need new eyes. You know what we need? We need new hearts. But that brings us to this crazy question. Jesus is calling us to get sober and serious. Earnest in our fight against sin. 
But then he's telling us already that the cause of our sin isn't our hands or feet or eyes. It's our hearts. So how can we get new hearts? I mean, what hope do we actually have that we could have new hearts so we could begin to successfully attach, attack our sin? Well, what hope do we have? Well, that brings us to the third clear truth of our text. It's this, that yes, hell is, hell is real and sin is serious. But listen, Jesus is our only hope. Guys, we can't change our hearts. That's why we need Jesus. And we don't just need Jesus, church, do we? We have Jesus. He came to make us new. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning Jesus Christ the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, church, Jesus came to earth to deal with our sin. And he dealt with sin with deadly urgency. He went to the cross. And at the cross, God placed our sin on Jesus. And a mystery I don't know, so I can't explain. God enabled Jesus to be sin on our behalf. He placed all our sin on Jesus. And the wrath of God, the anger of God that kindles the fires of hell, the anger wrath of God was placed on Jesus. In other words, Jesus endured hell in our place so that we would never have to endure hell ourselves. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, he makes us new. He makes us new from the inside out. In Christ, we're no longer sinners enslaved to sin. We become, this is the word of God we just read, we become the righteousness of God in Him. In Jesus Christ through faith, friend, we become new men, new women. He changes our identities from the inside out. He gives us new hearts by His Holy Spirit. It's a work He graciously does in us not a work we do for him. So when Jesus says, get serious about dealing with sin, I take Jesus to mean primarily get serious about trusting in me. That's exactly the paradigm we find in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Cut it off, in other words. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Guys, there is no doubt, no doubt that we are called to stop sinning, to cut it off, to lay it aside. No doubt the Bible calls us to a life of sanctification, of purity, of holiness. No doubt, but listen, church, to the full gospel of Jesus. We will not conquer sin by focusing on sin or cowering in fear of hell. We will conquer sin, how? By fixing our eyes on Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Only Jesus can deliver us from hell. Only Jesus can deliver us from sin. Jesus is our only hope. 
What I want you to see is that fits perfectly then into what Jesus says in our text. Look back at the first verse of our text, Mark chapter 9, verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones, now notice this phrase, it's really important, who believe in me to sin. Stop right there. Remember what is going on in this section. Just a few verses ago, Jesus picked up a little child and he held that child in his arms. And he talked about receiving a child and receiving other people who are like this child, people who trust in him. And then John brings up a man who had been casting out demons in Jesus' name. And what's apparent from the context is this man wasn't, he wasn't in the small select group of 12 disciples. So he wasn't privy to all of the front row teaching that Jesus had given to the disciples. So he didn't know all of the things that the disciples knew about the kingdom. But the one thing that's really clear is the man is trusting in Jesus and not his own power. He's casting out demons in the name of Christ because he knows he can't do it himself. So he's trusting in the power of Jesus. Jesus instead of trusting in the power of himself. And what Jesus is doing then when he comes to verse 42, keeping all of that in mind as he says, don't cause these little ones, these people who are, who are trusting in me to sin. And what he's doing is equating a person who trusts in him with a little child who's resting in his arm, who's resting in the strength of Jesus who's resting in the power of Christ. That's who believers are, Jesus says. They're people who in childlike faith are depending, resting, held in the power of Jesus and not themselves. And that's why the word sin is interesting. The word sin in this text means to stumble or to fall away. And at the very least, what Jesus is saying is he's warning us not to ever do anything that would cause another person to stumble or fall away from trusting Jesus. He's warning us, don't allow anything in your own life to allow you to stumble or fall away from trusting in Jesus. And yes, of course, that includes sin because really sin in every expression is, is just a, a way that we're not trusting in Jesus. Romans 14, 23 says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So to sin, to stumble, to fall away in trusting Jesus is the root of, of sin in our lives. And what Jesus is saying, and here's what I take him to be meaning, is that in our battle with sin, which should be earnest in life and death, we must be radically devoted to trusting in Jesus as our only hope to the point we will cut out anything that would keep us from trusting in Jesus, anything that would cause us to see ourselves or something else as as anything other than a child who has no strength, no power, no ability, but to be held in the arms of Christ. We must cut out anything from our lives that would cause us or anyone else around us to believe that there is any hope to be saved from sin or victorious, or, or, or victorious over sin or saved from hell. Anything other than Jesus. Only Jesus can save us from the grip of sin and hell as we in childlike faith are held safe in the arms of Christ. And that's where I believe the cryptic last verses of this text come in. Verse 49 says, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, commentators have countless views on what Jesus could be talking about here. I believe there's a clue 
that allows us to see maybe the, the way that Jesus intends this. It's in Leviticus chapter 2. And it comes from a section of the Bible that's talking about the sacrificial fires at the temple. And things to be offered in the sacrificial fires. And there's a peculiar reference to salt right here in the midst of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Leviticus 2 verse 13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. When the people of God brought their offerings, their sacrifices before the Lord, he says, you're called to season it with salt. Salt has this antiseptic quality. It purifies things. And what I believe Jesus is doing is that he's saying that when we offer our lives as an offering to him, What he will do and what he intends is to purify and refine our lives. And he will use the fire of trials in this life to purify us in our faith. Ultimately, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says that all of the works of our lives will be tried by fire to see the purity of what they really were. If they were a work of our flesh, of our self-righteousness, of our self He says they'll be consumed as though by fire. But if they are pure works that are empowered, not by our own strength, but by Christ in us, they will endure like gold and silver and precious stones. In other words, Jesus, I believe he's saying here that our lives will be purified as we trust in him, as though by fire our lives will be purified and he will give us his power then to overcome sin. Verse 50 then says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? That's quite the riddle, isn't it? He then goes on to say, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What's he talking about? Well, he starts by saying salt is good. And the next time I go to the doctor, I'm going to let her know that my sodium intake is right on course according to my religious beliefs. Salt is good. But seriously, how how does this connect with what what we've been seeing? Jesus will purify our lives with salt as though by fire we go through the trials of life and ultimately the trials of judgment and show that he was the one who purified our life. How how does that connect? Well, think of what he's saying. He's saying this, salt, now don't, don't get confused here, but salt that isn't salty isn't salt. You with me? Salt that isn't salty isn't salt. And he says then, and you can't make it salty again if it's not salt. Here's what you need to know. The salt that the Jews of Jesus' time would use was sourced from places that were highly contaminated with other elements like gypsum. And in the process of getting out the salt from those places, there were often times where they would get large quantities of things that were contaminated to such an extent they actually weren't even salt. They were something else entirely. So they thought they were getting salt, but they weren't actually getting salt. It wasn't salty. It wasn't pure salt. And because it wasn't pure salt, it was mingled in with other things, it wouldn't purify. It it wouldn't flavor their food. It wouldn't preserve their foods. It didn't have the power of salt Why? Because it was mingled with too many other things that weren't salt. Now, bring that back to what we've been seeing so far. If Jesus is our only hope to be saved from hell and empowered in our fight against sin, what would he be warning against? 
He would be warning us against mingling anything in with our faith in Jesus. In other words, he would say, don't try to fight sin. Don't try to save yourself with anything other than the salt of the gospel, the truth that I will purify you. Don't try to fight sin with your flesh. That's sin. It's self-righteousness. That's not the salt of the gospel. And because it's not the pure truth that only Jesus can empower our fight against sin and our salvation from hell, when we trust in anything other than Jesus, even some religious concoction mingled with the gospel and our own self-righteousness and our own works, Jesus says, it won't do the trick. Jesus plus anything is no longer the gospel. The gospel is Jesus only Jesus. You can't have the effectiveness of the power of Christ if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus. Jesus and only Jesus will purify our lives. That's what Jesus is calling us to in this text. A deadly earnestness of fighting sin and abandoning self by trusting in Jesus. Church, that's why we need to be so careful about how we consider this particular text. Because Jesus is absolutely calling us to be serious with sin. And he absolutely means that we should be radically fighting against sin. Against greed and lust and gossip and bitterness and anger and immorality and any other expression of sin. And at the same time, Jesus is reminding us with a child who is held safe in the arms of Christ, dependent entirely on the power of Jesus, that the only power that we have to be freed from sin and saved from hell is the power of Jesus Christ in us. Here's the way you could hear this said. Internet filters won't save you from lust. Self-improvement books won't save you from anger. Taking a vow of poverty won't save you from materialism and greed. Now those steps and those measures of accountability, those practical helps, those well-intended lifestyles, they may have a good and healthy place in your life. Guys, I'm not telling you to go home and cancel your internet filters. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Even though those practical helps may have a good and healthy place in your life, they won't do you a bit of good if you aren't trusting completely in the power of Jesus. You know why? Jesus is our only hope. And because we have Jesus, we have hope. And so rather than building out innumerable strategies in your life of how you're going to stop sinning through New Year's resolutions that haven't occurred yet and won't last the new year when it comes. Turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you don't save me, I won't be saved. But I believe you came to save me. So fill me with your spirit and fill my heart with hope. Because yes, hell is real. And yes, sin is serious. And yes, 
Jesus is our only hope. So friend, look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Depend on Jesus and not yourself. And live with a heart filled with faith in Jesus fixed on him and not your sin. Look to Jesus. And as we close, I just want us to consider three quick questions. And I would just ask that we would bow our heads and enter into a moment of reflection. And the first one is this. Are you trusting in Jesus to save you from eternity in hell? Are you trusting in Jesus to save you from eternity in hell? What makes you think you will enter the kingdom of heaven? There is only one way, and his name is Jesus. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, I want to encourage you to, in your heart, call out to Jesus to save you. Acknowledge your sin. That in yourself you deserve to be separated from God, but believe that Jesus came to deliver you from sin. That Christ lived the life that you failed to live, a life of perfect obedience. And he died the death you and I should have died as a payment for our sin, enduring God's wrath. Though he died, he rose again so that he could raise us up as a brand new creation in him to live a new kind of life by his power. Call on Jesus in faith to save you in every way you need saved. And thank him that all who call on him will be saved. For those of you who say, I'm trusting in Jesus, but I am struggling in sin. Right now, would you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I confess that these patterns of sin aren't a part of the life you died to give me. Would you save me? Would you deliver me? Would you give me power? I'm looking to you, Jesus. You are my hope in my battle with sins. How are you being stirred maybe by the Spirit of God to live in relationship with others in a way that encourages them and doesn't impede them or cause them to stumble in trusting Jesus for themselves? Maybe someone in your life that God is stirring your heart to reach out to. Through text message, maybe a letter, maybe a one-on-one conversation about their relationship with Jesus, encouraging the trust in Christ. Would you pray for them right now? And that Jesus would give you power and opportunity to encourage them to trust in Christ. Pray for your one. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have been so loved by Christ that he came to tell us the truth. That some of the most important messages are the hardest ones to hear. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus, he told us the truth about hell. He told us the truth about sin. And he told us the truth about himself. That only he can save. Only he can deliver. And I pray 
that we would leave this place today trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to do for us, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.